My dear young scholars, welcome. Today you have completed the thirteenth year of your lives. On such a day, a day on which you have left your old selves behind forever, it is fitting that I should reveal to you a momentous secret. For by the laws of our forefathers, you are no longer children as you were yesterday, but young men and women entitled to the fullness of adult knowledge. Now I have no doubt that you are wondering, as you sit here before me on this day of days, what is that momentous secret of which I speak? It is nothing less, my dear ones, than the secret of our people. It is the secret that distinguishes us from all other people. It is the secret that makes us what we and only we supremely are. You are well aware, my dear young scholars. That throughout our long history, we have called ourselves people of the book. Today, I ask you to consider those words carefully. What do they signify? They signify, to begin with, that we revere books. That for us, the study of books is the highest of all callings. That we hold all books to be a reflection, however dim, of the first book of all. That we consider every moment spent away from books a punishment, and a desolation of spirit. That we believe in every fiber of our being, that books, far from leading us away from life, lead us directly to the center of life, to all that is vital and everlasting. But that is not all we mean. That is not even primarily what we mean, when we call ourselves people of the book. For by that proud title, we mean that we trace our beginnings to books themselves. We mean, my dear young scholars, that we originate from books. We mean, if I may speak to you even more plainly, that books are our ancestors. And by our ancestors, I wish you to understand, in the broadest sense, all those books that have been born in the world up to the present day. And in the strictest sense, those first twelve tablets from which all others spring. You are, of course, familiar, my dear ones, with a book of legends. You have studied its stories. You have discussed the six levels of meaning under the guidance of learned teachers. Now it happens that within the many volumes of the book of legends, there are pages you have not yet seen. You have not yet seen them because until today you were children, and therefore shut away from forms of knowledge not suited to your years. Among those pages is the Exorcis in the seventh volume, which in its full title is known as the Exorcis on the Copulation of Books. There we are told that in the beginning, when the earth was without form, and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The creator breathed forth the first words onto twelve tablets of stone. In this manner, the first book was born. Mark well, young scholars, that I have been speaking to you of the first day of creation, before the light was divided from the darkness. I have been speaking to you of a time before the creation of man. Now those twelve tablets into which the Creator breathed the breath of His incomparable being were living things, and as living things they possessed the powers that rightly belong to living things, 
among which are numbered locomotion and copulation. Thus it came to pass in those days, after the earth brought forth its creatures, and all living things flourished and multiplied, that when one tablet lay upon another, a new tablet was born. So began the coming forth of books, each one reflecting their original tablets, but more and more faintly. The reproductive virtues of the original tablets were passed on to their offspring, who in turn brought forth new books, each giving back a less perfect reflection of the first ancestors. My dear ones, listen. As the generations of man began to multiply and spread throughout the land, a great discovery was made. It happened one day that a scholar reading in a garden under the shade of a pomegranate tree grew tired in the warmth of the afternoon. And laying aside his tablet of stone, he fell into a deep sleep. It chanced that a maiden, the daughter of the house at which the young man was teaching, entered the garden. And seeing the stone tablet which lay in the grass, she picked it up and looked at it curiously. Then the maiden sat down in the grass and placed the tablet on her lap, and in the heat of the sun she soon fell asleep. And behold, the divine spirit which breathes through the generations of books was present in that tablet of stone and passed into the womb of the maiden. Thus she grew big with child. In this manner our race was born. You see by the story, my dear young scholars, that our ancestors were born of a union between a tablet and a maiden, which is to say, between the spirit and the body, the word and the flesh. Now, you may well ask whether this method of generation is in use among us today. Although stories of such couplings are told, yet we read in the commentaries that the power of generation was lost long ago, when the offspring of tablets, though bearing within themselves, a dim spark of the living breath that had animated the ancestors, no longer retained that fructifying power. But do not despair, young scholars, for the power of passing on that original breath is the gift of our people. And as we grow fruitful and multiply, we who derive, however slantwise, however remotely, from those first tablets of stone on the first day of creation, so we participate in the animating spirit of the universe, of which we are the guardians and the perpetuators. Since the birth of our people, we have spread to every corner of the earth, where we mingle with ordinary men and women. How then shall we know one another, we who are one people, yet live scattered among far-flung races? My dear ones, we are known to one another by the outward signs of our inward devotion. The intense application to study, the habit of inattention to the physical world, the rejection of external distraction, a fanaticism of the desk. By our signs you shall know us. The back laboriously bent, the neck frozen, the head immobile, the eyes burning, the arms still as stone. Only the fingers occasionally move, just enough and no more for the turning of a page. 
But how, you may wonder, shall such a people, devoted as they are to the perpetual act of study, carried on single-mindedly during the course of an entire lifetime? How shall such a people, who seek each day in the faded reflections of multitudes of generations of books, the original splendor of the lost twelve tablets, how shall such a people live? How shall we conduct our lives? How shall we, with our furious dedication to the word, pursue a life in the world, with its myriad distractions and temptations? In the histories we learn that in ancient days the practical duties of life were given over, over to the care of women and failed scholars. In this way, the gifted among us were able to pursue their studies without worldly distraction, at long tables in communal libraries, interrupted solely by two sparse meals taken in silence, and by four hours of sleep at night. But even in those days, the authority of women, although limited, was by no means slight. Exiled from the entirely masculine world of study, forbidden to strive for the highest reaches of the human spirit, they were nevertheless so completely in charge of the practical practical world, that the scholars in their libraries were dependent on them for their very lives. In more recent times, of course, young girls have been permitted to engage in study side by side with, with boys, and are no longer prevented from attaining the highest degree of worthiness, while the duties of practical life have fallen to those of both sexes who, after the fifteenth year, have proved unable to live in the loftiest realm of rigorous learning, and so devote themselves to the useful tasks that sustain and nourish our people. But even those men and women who serve the demands of daily life spend every spare moment bent over a book. Since all of us have been trained to arduous study during our first fifteen years, Thus, it may truly be said of us that even outside the highest domain of learning, we are all, in a very, very, very real sense, people of the book. Because of our fervent devotion to books, my dear ones, it is necessary that our relations with them be clearly established by law, so that the spirit of excess, so visible in the history of our people, so desirable in all matters pertaining to the higher realms of existence, shall not be applied harmfully to the physical forms that bear upon them the outward signs of the indwelling spirit. You are all familiar with a vast book of laws. You have all memorized many passages. You know that the book of laws contains prohibitions with which govern the relations between human beings and books. Now, the first prohibition is this, that thou shalt not destroy or mutilate in any way injure a book or any portion thereof. And this law, my dear ones, has been taught to you from your earliest years. But there is a second prohibition which you do not yet know. And the second prohibition is this, that thou shalt not copulate with or perform any manner of procreative act upon a book. For although the books of our time no longer possess the capacity to engage in acts of copulation as they did in ancient days, 
as recorded in the seventh volume of the Book of Legends, still it happens that a young person, or less frequently a person of mature years, feverish with a desire to learn, conducts himself or herself improperly with a book, as, for example, by laying the body with lascivious intent upon or beneath a book, or the open pages thereof, and must be punished. Now the punishment for violating the first prohibition, or the destruction of a book, is death. For a book is a living thing, as I have said. And the punishment for violating the second prohibition, or copulation with a book, is mutilation of the sexual parts. It therefore behooves you, my dear young scholars, to maintain proper relations with books, which is not to say that you should tame your fervor, but that you should direct it towards its proper end. And having mentioned death, I would like to speak to you for a moment about the meaning of death. For us who burn with a desire to find our way to life, to the breath of the Creator breathed into the first book of all. My dear young people, listen. Today you have completed the thirteenth year of your lives, and yet, if I may put it so, you already lie on your deathbeds. Your hands shake, your eyes grow dim, your ears admit no sounds. You are old, my dear ones, you are old. Birth, it is said, is the beginning of death. But it is not only the beginning of death, it is also the continuing of death. The continuing of all the deaths of all those who have come before you since the sixth day of creation. When you are born, you are older than Adam, who lived 930 years. You are older than Noah, who lived 950 years. Methuselah, Methuselah, compared to you, is a baby who shakes his rattle. You are old, my dear ones. You are dying. You are already buried in the ground. You were born wailing, and why? Because when you open your eyes, death grins at you from your mother's face. You come into the world with a knife in your neck. Your mother rocks you in your coffin. You learn to crawl inside a grave. The worm is your brother. Dead men's bones are your sisters. Who is the bridegroom? Who is the bride? Behold the two skeletons kissing under the canopy. What is life? A sick bed in a hospital. The nurses are busy. The doctor is dying. No one will ever come. Why then, my dear ones, should we live at all? What is the meaning of this dying that surrounds us on all sides, that lies in wait for us day and night? And when you are mindful that it is not you alone who will die, but all those who are dear to you, your mother and father, your sister, your brother, your beloved friends, your revered teachers, revered teachers, your unborn sons and daughters. When you are mindful that all those who once were living are now dust in the wind, then it seems difficult not simply to bend your mind to a lifetime of study, but even to rise from bed in the morning in order to begin a new day. 
But, you ask, can we not take pleasure in multiplying our kind? Can we not delight in passing on to the next generation our special task? For we do not live for ourselves alone. We live for our people, for all those who have yet to come into the world. Alas, in the book of prophecies, we read that our people, so rich in wisdom, so rich in suffering, chosen above all others to find the undiscovered words, are destined to come to an end. There we read that the mountains will fall, the sky will grow dark, all mankind will cease, and a time will come when it is the seventh day, and then the sixth day, the fifth day, and then the fourth day, the third day, second day, behold, the last day of all, and thereafter it will be as it was before the beginning of days. This is what we are told in the book of prophecies. Why then should we not despair, my dear ones? Why should we continue for another day, another hour? Why should we devote ourselves to a long life of spiritual striving in the full knowledge of our inevitable nothingness? My dear young scholars, I will tell you why. I will tell you that in the same book of prophecies, we learn of a way through the darkness. The cellar has a stairway. The grave has a door. Yes, my dear ones, yes. For just as that first book, filled with the breath of the Creator, can never cease to be, so is it with all books touched by that life-giving power. My dear ones, my lovely ones, listen to me. Listen as I tell you of the paradise of books. In the twelfth volume of the Book of Prophecies, we learn that books, like all things on earth, live out their years and die. Now, when a book dies, when, that is to say, a book crumbles to dust, or is destroyed by fire, or by water, or by pestilence, or by any of the innumerable accidents that can befall the creatures of this earth, when, for any reason, a book ceases to sustain its material shape, then, in the space of a single breath, it ascends to the seventh paradise, which is known to us as the paradise of books. There you may find the eternal and unchanging shape of every book that has ever been born. There you may find the generation of descendants of those first twelve tablets, whether they be of stone or papyrus or parchment or paper or any other word-receiving form. Therefore, we are told, if you are among the most fortunate, you may come upon the first book of all. Now, the paradise of books is the seventh paradise, as I have said. It is the place to which only scholars and writers of the highest spiritual striving can ascend. But all of us, by virtue of our origin, are entitled to approach the judgment seat at the gates of that heavenly place. Therefore, study diligently, my dear young scholars, and bend your minds away from worldly things, so that when you complete your dying, you will ascend to the paradise of books and live in joy forever. And now you will understand me well, my dear ones, when I say unto you, welcome to death, by which I mean welcome to life. 
Welcome to the breath that blows through all things. Welcome to the paradise of books. The study and the library in which you will spend your days are emblems of that paradise to which we all aspire. For though the way is dark, the end is dazzling bright. And I say unto you, my dear ones, remember well the words I have spoken to you on this day, when you have completed your thirteenth year of life, of death. Now let me ask you to close your eyes. Let me ask you to close your eyes and see. See the study room. See the long tables. See the scholars at their books. Do you see them, the scholars, in their clothes of black and white? They do not move. They make no sound. My dear ones, I ask you, what do they look like when you see them there? What do they resemble? Are they not, by their stillness, by their inwardness, the very sign and symbol of a living book? Are they not tablets of breathing stone? For these are your people, whose origin you now know. Then bless you, my dear young scholars, and be mindful, as you set forth on this memorable day. For on this day I have revealed to you the secret of our people. On this day I have shown you the meaning of death. For before the beginning was, the first book is. That is the sum of all wisdom. That is all you need to know. My dear, my dear ones, my delightful ones, tomorrow is a new day. Tomorrow you will begin your long journey through the commentaries. It is a journey that will last seven years. Some of you will fall by the wayside. The rest of you will persevere. At times you will grow tired. Your minds will grow perplexed. All life, all death, will seem to you a great riddle, which you can never solve. A darkness will come over your spirit. You will search for a way out, and there will be no way out. But in that hopeless place, in that blackness without light, remember what I have told you here today. Remember the secret of our people. Remember the paradise of books. And when you rise from the study room, bowed down with weariness, then I say unto you, my dear ones, lift your eyes to the heaven shelves on every wall. Lift your eyes to the living and breathing words that surround you, to the books that soar over you. Lift your eyes in rapture and know who you are. For behold, they are the ancestors, row on row, Phantoms, the phenomenon. The phantoms of our town do not, as some think, appear only in the dark. Often we come upon them in full sunlight, when shadows lie sharp on the lawns and streets. The encounters take place for very short periods, ranging from two or three seconds to perhaps half a minute, though longer episodes are sometimes reported. So many of us have seen them that it's uncommon to meet someone who has not. Of this minority, only a small number deny that phantoms exist. Sometimes an encounter occurs more than once in the course of a single day. 
Sometimes six months pass, or a year. The phantoms, which some call presences, are not easy to distinguish from ordinary citizens. They are not translucent, or smoke-like, or hazy. They do not ripple like heat waves, nor are they in any way unusual in figure or dress. Indeed, they are so much like us that sometimes it happens we mistake them for someone we know. Such errors are rare, and never last for more than a moment. They themselves appear to be uneasy during an encounter and swiftly withdraw. They always look at us before turning away. They never speak. They are wary, elusive, secretive, haughty, unfriendly, remote. One explanation has it that our phantoms are the auras, or visible traces, of earlier inhabitants of our town, which was settled in 1636. Our atmosphere, saturated with the energy of all those who have preceded us, preserves them and permits them, under certain conditions, to become visible to us. This explanation, often fitted out with a pseudoscientific vocabulary, strikes most of us as convincing. The phantoms always appear in contemporary dress. They never behave in ways that suggest earlier eras, and there is no evidence whatever to support the claim that the dead leave visible traces in the air. As children, we are told about the phantoms by our fathers and mothers. They, in turn, have been told by their own fathers and mothers, who can remember being told by their parents, our great-grandparents, when they were children. Thus, the phantoms of our town are not new. They don't represent a sudden eruption into our lives, a recent change in our sense of things. We have no formal records that confirm the presence of phantoms throughout the diverse periods of our history, no scientific reports or transcripts of legal proceedings. But some of us are familiar with the second-floor archive room of our library, where in 19th-century diaries we find occasional references to the others or them without further details. Church records of the 17th century include several mentions of the devil's children, which some view as evidence for the lineage of our phantoms. Others argue that the phrase is so general that it cannot be cited as proof of anything. The official town history published in 1936 on the 300th anniversary of our incorporation revised in 1986 and updated in 2006, makes no mention of the phantoms. An editorial note states that the authors have confined themselves to ascertainable fact. We know by a ripple along the skin of our forearms, accompanied by a tension of their inner body. We know because they look at us and withdraw immediately. We know because when we try to follow them, we find that they have vanished. We know because we know. Richard Moore rises from beside the bed 
where he has just finished the 42nd installment of a never-ending story that he tells each night to his four-year-old daughter, bends over her for a goodnight kiss, and walks quietly from the room. He loves having a daughter. He loves having a wife, a family. Though he married late at 39, he knows he wasn't ready when he was younger, not in his doped-up 20s, not in his stupid, wasted 30s, when he was still acting like some angry teenager who hated the grown-ups, and now he's grateful for it all, like someone who can hardly believe that he's allowed to live in his own house. He walks along the hall to the den, where his wife is sitting at one end of the couch, reading a book in the light of the table lamp, while the TV is on mute during an ad for vinyl siding. He loves that she won't watch the ads, that she refuses to waste those minutes, that she reads books, that she's sitting there waiting for him, that the light from the TV is flickering on her hand and upper arm. Something has begun to bother him, though he isn't sure what it is. But as he steps into the den, he's got it. He's got it. The table in the side yard, the two folding chairs, the sunglasses on the tabletop. He was sitting out there with her after dinner, and he left his sunglasses. Back in a sack, he says, and turns away, enters the kitchen, opens the door to the small screen porch at the back of the house, and walks from the porch down the steps to the backyard, a narrow strip between the house and the cedar fence. It's 9.30 on a summer night. The sky is dark blue, the fence lit by the light from the kitchen window, the grass black here and green over there. He turns the corner of the house and comes to the private place. It's the part of the yard bounded by the fence, the side yard hedge, and the row of three scotch pines, where he's set up two folding chairs and a white ironwork table with a glass top. On the table lie the sunglasses. The sight pleases him. The two chairs turned a little toward each other, the forgotten glasses, the enclosed place set off from the rest of the world. He steps over to the table and picks up the glasses. A good pair, expensive lenses, nothing flashy, stylish in a quiet way. As he lifts them from the table, he senses something in the skin of his arms and sees a figure standing beside the third scotch pine. It's darker here than at the back of the house, and he can't see her all that well. A tall, erect woman, forty-ish, long face, dark dress. Her expression, which he can barely make out, seems stern. She looks at him for a moment and turns away, not hastily, as if she were frightened, but decisively, like someone who wants to be alone. Behind the scotch pine, she's no longer visible. He hesitates, steps over to the tree, sees nothing. His first impulse is to stream, scream at her, to tell her that he'll kill her if she comes near his daughter. Immediately, he forces himself to calm down. Everything will be all right. There's no danger. 
He's seen them before. Even so, he returns quickly to the house, locks the porch door behind him, locks the kitchen door behind him, fastens the chain and strides to the den, where on the TV, a man in a dinner jacket is staring across the room at a woman with pulled back hair who is seated at a piano. His wife is watching. As he steps toward her, he notices a pair of sunglasses in his hand. Most of us are familiar with the look they cast in our direction before they withdraw. The look has been variously described as proud, hostile, suspicious, mocking, disdainful, uncertain. Never is it seen as welcoming. Some witnesses say that the phantoms show slight movements in our direction before the decisive turning away. Others, disputing such claims, argue that we cannot bear to imagine their rejection of us and misread their movements in a way flattering to our self-esteem. Now and then we hear reports of a more questionable kind. The phantoms, we are told, have grayish wings folded along their backs. The phantoms have swirling smoke for eyes. At the ends of their feet, claws curl against the grass. Such descriptions, though rare, are persistent, perhaps inevitable and impossible to refute. They strike most of us as childish and irresponsible, the results of careless observation, hasty inference, and heightened imagination corrupted by conventional images drawn from movies and television. Whenever we hear such descriptions, we're quick to question them and to make the case for the accumulated evidence of trustworthy witnesses. A paradoxical effect of our vigilance is that the phantoms, rescued from the fantastic, for a moment seem to us normal, commonplace, as familiar as squirrels or dandelions. Years ago, as a child of eight or nine, Karen Karsten experienced a single encounter. Her memory of the moment is both vivid and vague. She can't recall how many of them there were or exactly what they looked like, but she recalls the precise moment at which she came upon them one summer afternoon as she stepped around to the back of the garage in search of a soccer ball and saw them sitting quietly in the grass. She still remembers her feeling of wonder as they turned to look at her before they rose and went away. Now at age 56, Karen Karsten lives alone with her cat in a house filled with framed photographs of her parents, her nieces, and her late husband, who died in a car accident 17 years ago. Karen is a high school librarian with many set routines. The TV programs, the weekend house cleaning, the twice yearly visits in August and December to her sister's family in Youngstown, Ohio, the choir on Sunday, dinner every two weeks at the same restaurant with a friend who never calls to ask how she is. One Saturday afternoon, she finishes organizing the linen closet on the second floor and starts up the attic stairs. 
She plans to sort through boxes of old clothes, some of which she'll give to Goodwill, and some of which she'll save for her nieces, who will think of the collared blouses and floral print dresses as hopelessly old-fashioned, but who might come around to appreciating them someday, maybe. As she reaches the top of the stairs, she stops so suddenly and completely that she has the sense of her own body as an object standing in her path. Ten feet away, two children are seated on the old couch near the dollhouse. A third child is sitting in the armchair with a loose leg. In the brownish light of the attic, with its one small window, she can see them clearly. Two barefoot girls of about ten, in jeans and t-shirts, and a boy slightly older, maybe twelve, blonde-haired, in a dress shirt and khakis, who sits low in the chair with his neck bent up against the back. The three turn to look at her, and at once rise and walk into the darker part of the attic, where they are no longer visible. Karen stands motionless at the top of the stairs, her hand clutching the rail. Her lips are dry, and she is filled with an excitement so intense that she thinks she might burst into tears. She does not follow the children into the shadows, partly because she doesn't want to upset them, and partly because she knows they are no longer there. She turns and walks back towards the stairs. In the living room, she sits in the armchair until nightfall. Joy fills her heart. She can feel it shining from her face. That night, she returns to the attic, straightens the pillows on the couch, smooths out the doilies on the chair arms, brings over a small wicker table, sets out three saucers and three teacups. She moves away some bulging boxes that sit beside the couch, carries off an old typewriter, sweeps the floor. Downstairs in the living room, she turns on the TV, but she keeps the volume low. She's listening for sounds in the attic, even though she knows that her visitors don't make sounds. She imagines them up there, sitting silently together, enjoying the table, the teacups, and the orderly surroundings. Now each day she climbs the stairs to the attic, where she sees the empty couch, the empty chair, the wicker table with the three teacups. Despite the pain of disappointment, she's happy. She's happy because she knows they come to visit her every day. She knows they like to be up there, sitting in the old furniture, around the wicker table. She knows. She knows. One explanation is that the phantoms are not there, that those of us who see them are experiencing delusions or hallucinations brought about by beliefs instilled in us as young children. A small movement, an unexpected sound, is immediately converted into a visual presence that exists only in the mind of the perceiver. The flaws in this explanation are threefold. First, it assumes that the population of an entire town will interpret ambiguous signs in precisely the same way. Second, it ignores the fact 
that most of us, as we grow to adulthood, discard the stories and false beliefs of childhood, but continue to see the phantoms. Third, it fails to account for innumerable instances in which multiple witnesses have seen the same phantom. Even if we were to agree that these objections are not decisive, and that our phantoms are in fact not there, the explanation would tell us only that we are mad, without revealing the meaning of our madness. What shall we say to our children? If, like most parents in our town, we decide to tell them at an early age about the phantoms, we worry that we have filled their nights with terror or perhaps have created in them a hope, a longing, for an encounter that might never take place. Those of us who conceal the existence of phantoms are no less worried, for we fear either that the children will be informed unreliably by other children or that they will be dangerously unprepared for an encounter should one occur. Even those of us who have prepared our children are worried about the first encounter, which sometimes disturbs a child in ways that some of us remember only too well. Although we assure our children that there is nothing to fear from the phantoms who wish only to be left alone, we ourselves are fearful. We wonder whether the phantoms are as harmless as we say they are. We wonder whether they behave differently in the presence of an unaccompanied child. We wonder whether, under certain circumstances, they might become bolder than we know. Some say that a phantom, encountering an adult and a child, will look only at the child, will let its gaze linger in a way that never happens with an adult. When we put our children to sleep, leaning close to them and answering their questions about phantoms in gentle, soothing tones until their eyes close in peace, we understand that we have been preparing in ourselves an anxiety that will grow stronger and more aggressive as the night advances. The question of crossing over refuses to disappear despite a history of testimony that many of us feel ought to be put to rest. By crossing over, we mean, in general, any form of intermingling between us and them. Specifically, it refers to supposed instances in which one of them, or one of us, leaves the native community and joins the other. Now, not only is there no evidence of any such regrouping, of any such transference of loyalty, but the overwhelming testimony of witnesses show that no phantom has ever remained for more than a few moments in the presence of an outsider or given any sign whatever of greeting or encouragement. Claims to the contrary have always been suspect. The insistence of an alcoholic husband that he saw his wife in bed with one of them the assertion of a teenager suspended from high school that a group of phantoms had threatened to harm him if he failed to obey their commands. Apart from statements that purport to be factual, fantasies of crossing over persist in the form of phantom tales that flourish among our children 
and are half believed by naive adults. It is not difficult to make the case that stories of this kind reveal a secret desire for contact, though no reliable record of contact is, exists. Those of us who try to maintain a strict, a strict objectivity in such matters are forced to admit that a crossing of the line isn't impossible, however unlikely, so that even as we challenge dubious claims and smile at fairy tales, we find ourselves imagining the sudden encounter at night, the heads turning toward us, the moment of hesitation, the arms rising gravely in welcome.